You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Welcome to Living Way Church. Glad you're here today. We continue our series uh, on 1 John called Moment of Truth. And 1 John is about the apostle, the elder statesman now, John, who is in his senior years. He's uh, now an elder at the church in Ephesus. And as he is coming to the end of his life, he's the only uh, apostle to not be martyred. And he has uh, been blessed with the opportunity to be a, a senior elder in the church of God uh, as a whole, an apostle and an elder at a local church. And he's writing letters to the churches, challenging them to, to understand what it means to truly be a follower of Christ. And in this letter, we call it First John, but it's the first of several letters. We don't have all the letters that he wrote. We have three of the letters that he wrote, plus the gospel that he wrote, and the book of Revelation that he wrote. But in First John, he basically says, guys, there are a lot of people who are picking and choosing what they want to believe about Jesus and about God, about life. And he goes, I want to set the record straight. So First John is all about helping us to understand who is a real follower of Christ and who is a poser follower of Christ. And the test doesn't begin with somebody else. The test begins with ourselves. So what we've been doing is we've been going through First John, examining and asking ourselves the question, the questions that John asks and, and applying them to our life. And uh, in the course of four letters, a very small, uh, four chapters, a very small letter, in uh, 22 of those passages, he gives 10 questions. And we've been looking at one or two a week. We're going to look at two more today. And then next week, we have a special service, 4th of July service, with one of our elders uh, going to be preaching next Sunday. Uh, we're going to be heading off to camp as well. And so I'm excited for you guys. Next Sunday, we're going to have a special message by one of our elders. And then the following week, we'll be wrapping up the First John series with one last question. So uh, today, two questions. Now, God's story, the story of, of, of really the scriptures, the story of redemption is found in every culture around the world. In every great story, there is a, there is a hero who has a fall. Uh, or a person, or a, a man, or a woman who has a fall. There is there is a curse. There is a fight. There is a battle. In every great story, there is a rescue. There is a story. Every one of them. All stories reveal the heart of mankind, uh, searching for redemption. We call them fairy tales. Now, in every fairy tale, there is a there is a a loss, a curse, a fight, a rescue, a redemption. And we ha- in every great movie, in every great story, that is the underlying theme because we have stamped on our heart a desire, a seeking for a redeemer, a rescue. And, and I don't think it's any, any surprise that around the globe the stories are all very similar. Now, uh, we as a family have gone to Disney a few times and we've gone to the uh, Disneyland a couple of times, Disney World a, a couple of times, uh, Disneyland one time, Disney World a couple of times. And uh, I tell you, it is it is a magical place. If you've ever been there, it is like it is it is one of the most wonderful places on earth. I mean, you're like it's magical everywhere, and it's all these stories uh, come to life. You have all these characters walking the streets, and every single Disney character you can imagine they got a ride for, or a character for, or a restaurant for, or a, a balloon, or whatever. I mean, they got everything's represented, but all of those stories tell the same story in every 
culture around the world. And whether they're a child or a grown-up, we long for those stories because they tell the dynamic story of a curse, a fall, a curse, a fight, a rescue, a redemption, a hero that rides in to save the day. And John reminds us in 1 John, this week is about how we have gone from frogs to princes and how this is more than just a fairy tale. This is the truth. This is the real story. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week at 1 John chapter 3. I want to look at something that's more than a fairy tale and how if you're a follower of Christ, you've gone from a frog to a prince. So let's take a look at it. First of all, it starts off in 1 John 3 and it says, See! Some translations say, behold. I had a little feedback there, sorry. Uh, It says, behold. And you know what that means? It says, says, you have got to see this. It's not a, oh, hi. By the way, you got to check this out. No, when he says see, it's literally an exclamation of, oh, my gosh, behold. Check this out. This is for real. He says, see, behold. You've got to realize what great love the Father has lavished on us. He says, can you see it? Can, do you understand the, the complexity and the, 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 just the amazing love, the amazing grace? Can you see it? Do you, can you, are your eyes able to, to grasp the Father's lavished, incredible, poured out love for us? And he goes, that we, those of us that are Christians, those of us that God has called, that we would be called children of God. He says, can you believe it? Can you believe this is not a fairy tale? This is, can you believe this? This fairy tale that we've been telling our kids about a redeemer, a savior, a messiah, he has come, he's here. It is, it's not a fairy tale, it's for real. He goes, can you realize, can you, can you fathom, do you understand that he calls us children of God now. And that is what we are. If you're a Christian, he says, that is what we are. We're adopted. We're part of his family. He says, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, two things really jump out in that passage. The first thing is, is a couple things about this is that if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, then we have been kissed by God and the curse has been broken. I want you to think of that old, you know, frog and the prince fairy tale where you've got the, you know, the hanging out on a lily pad, you know, just he, he once was a, a person, but he was cursed and now he's, he's deformed and he's, uh, he's, he's, and then all of a sudden comes the kiss that sets him free. We are that deformed, spiritually deformed and cursed frog on that lily pad and here comes God, John is reminding us, he's saying, don't forget what God has done for you. Don't ever forget what God has poured out for us, what he has come for. I mean, he has taken us from the swamp to the palace. He has taken us from deformity to forgiveness and grace. He has taken us. He says, you are changed. You are adopted. You're made new. He says, you're made a citizen of heaven. Can you behold, do you understand the lavish love that he would call us, that he would call us children. The second thing he says this, he says, don't expect the frogs to celebrate or understand. 
he says, the world, he says, they don't understand us. They don't understand our passion. They don't understand our, our, uh, uh, our view of life, our view of the world. They don't understand our understanding of how the scriptures shape our ideas, not culture. He says, they don't understand the change that takes place in us. He says, and they won't. You see, salvation is hard for most to understand. The world will not understand you. They might respect you, or they might give you some space, or they might, uh, you know, just kind of give you room to believe what you want to believe, but they won't understand it until they embrace it. And this is important to understand because John says, do you understand, but don't expect the world to understand. Don't expect the frogs to celebrate or to understand. 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, for the message of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You might have some friends. I was just talking to someone earlier today, uh, this morning, and this is this is a passage for you. You know who you are. This is the verse. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says there's just, you know, those that are lost, they just don't understand it until the Spirit of God reveals it. And second. Uh, in uh, the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, verse 14, it says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Now, this is important. So as much as you love your kids, if they're not born again, they will not understand you. As much as you love your spouse or as much as you love your parents or as much as you love that best friend, that coworker, that boss, if you are a Christian, don't expect them to understand your enthusiasm and your passion for Jesus. Now, they'll respect you. They'll give you some space, and, but they won't understand until the Spirit of God reveals it to them. And when the Spirit of God does... That's when people embrace it themselves because their, their, their eyes are opened up. The blindness is gone. In John 15, Jesus often said, but in John 15, he told his disciples, he says, uh, don't expect the world to love you. He says, I want you to expect that they won't like you. And the reason they won't like you is because, not because of you. It's not, they, they, they're not going to like you because of you. They're going to not like you because of me. So Jesus often said the world doesn't like that God is calling us to bow at the feet of Christ and submit our life and his will to him. And they don't like that. People want to rule their own life. They want to be their own God. That's why the religions of the world are all really about saving yourself. It's your salvation is in your hands. But in the scriptures, salvation is in the hands of Christ alone. He says people don't like putting their trust in somebody else. They want to be self-sufficient. They want to be their own boss. And you know what? Don't expect them to understand until the spirit of God reveals it to them. He says, and they're not hating you, they're hating me. Now, I want you to realize that Christianity is the most uh, persecuted religion in the world. A few things. Uh, it's the most oppressed religion in the world. Uh, persecution against Christians is reported in over 110 countries. 11 Christians are killed every hour of every single day somewhere in the world. The International Society for Human Rights says 80% of all acts of religious discrimination in the world are directed against Christians. 100,000 Christians are killed every year because of their faith in Jesus. Hundreds and thousands of Christians 
are tortured, imprisoned, exiled, threatened, excluded, attacked, and discriminated against on a widespread scale across the world. And Jesus said, you know what? They don't hate you. They hate me. Now, I want you to realize that more Christians have died for their faith in the last 30 years than in the first 300 years of the early church. It's not going to get any easier. Persecution is not going to let up. It's going to intensify. As we stand stronger, the world will understand less and less. He says, they don't hate you. They hate me in you. And this is important because if you want to change and, and filter into the world, they probably won't hate you as much because you're just like them. But Christ says, when you follow me, expect the world not to understand you. Now, this is a, one, this is a hard one to, to really get a hold of because there's just some people who you love who will go, you know, I, I've had family members who I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, I've been, you know, I've, I'm, a, I'm a graduate, <laughs> you know, I've been to college, but they still, because I'm a religious person, uh, they, they, I'm still looked at as this kind of small-minded, narrow-minded simpleton, you know, and they don't understand that Christians are intellectual. Christians are intelligent. Christians understand the, the complexities of science and embrace, you know, uh, you know science, and they, they, they embrace and understand philosophy uh, when interpreted through the lens of Scripture. Uh, yeah, a lot of people, they just think Christians, you know, God bless them. God, God, God will love them, you know, simple narrow-minded, you know, bigoted even, you know, they're just, God, God love them, you know, but they just won't understand because the Spirit of God in you has revealed it to you, but it hasn't revealed it to them. It is foolishness to those that are perishing. And John says, don't expect the frogs to celebrate. But you, however, have been kissed by God, and the curse has been broken. Second Corinthians 4, 3 says, and even if our gospel is veiled, that means if some people can't see it, it is veiled to those who are perishing. He says, in their case, the God of this world, that means Satan. Satan is not literally a God. It's, this, is a, this is kind of a, a figure of speech. He says, the God of this world or the cultures that they have idolized, the things in this world that have become an idol, a God to them, uh, Satan himself behind this deception, he says, these things have blinded the minds of the believers uh, of unbelievers have blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So listen, prince and princess. Don't expect the frogs to celebrate. The next verse, he goes right into how we get a happy ending. In First uh, John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Dear friends, now we are the children of God. He, he says, you know, we've been kissed by God. We're no longer frogs anymore. He says, we are the children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. He says, man, there is so much. There's so much more than this life. There's so much more than trying to gratify and fulfill the pleasures, the pursuits, and the desires. of. The, there's so much. Man, we don't even know everything. He says, man, what, what we will be has not yet even been made known. He says, but we do know some things. He says, but we do know that when he appears, we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Now, what does that mean? It does not mean that we will be a God. Because Jesus is God, it doesn't mean that we're going to become divinity. What it does mean is that we will be glorified. We will be made perfect in his sight. And we will be made into such a unique 
glorified being, that we will be able to commune with God without any hindrance, that we will be able to stand in his presence without the, the things that hold us back in this life. He says, man, he says, verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That means if you understand this, you live different. If you understand this, you pursue things differently. He says, you got to get a hold of this. That's why he goes back, behold, do you see? Do you understand his lavish love for us and what we have waiting for us? He says, because if you do, you understand the frogs won't celebrate, but you have something to celebrate. The most amazing thing about heaven is not what we'll get, it's what we'll become. You can write that down. We have been changed into a new creation here, but we will be changed when he arrives. That means all that sickness, all those, you know, every mosquito bite, you know, <laughs> this mosquito season, every sprained ankle, every cough, every allergy, every disease, every sickness, every deformity, every uh, disability, all of that will be done away. We will be fully made new. In this life, we are spiritually changed and made new. And in the next, we are physically, spiritually, and wholly glorified and made new. He says, this is, uh, this is about going from a frog to a prince. Uh, this is not about what we get. This is about what we become and that we are able to have fellowship with the king in the presence of Jesus, unhindered and unrestricted. So then John tells us the difference between a frog and a prince. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, we're going to pick it up where we left off. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. Sin is lawlessness. Now, John defines sin as a complete disregard of God. By the way, I mean, the, the sin basically means miss the mark. It's, it's like when you're shooting arrows or shooting a gun or a rifle, the idea is that you have a target, but you can't get it. You just miss it, you fall short, or you overdo it. He says that is sin. But John defines sin as someone who is completely disregarding God's clear commands. There's a lot of people that do that. There's a lot of so-called Christians, John says, that do that. He says everyone who Sin, uh, who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, a complete disregard of God's word. He says, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. That's the reason he came. He defines why Jesus came. The sin is the definition, one who disregards God's plan for their life, for his law, his word. And Jesus defines what he came for, uh, John does. He came for this reason, to take away sin. Not just forgive us, but to take it away. We're going to talk about that. And in him is no sin. Jesus is sinless. He's perfect. He's without sin. Jesus never sinned. He never said a swear word. When he hit his thumb, he was a carpenter. If he uh, followed the traditions of his father, he never, you know, said a swear word when he, you know, he never, when he hit his thumb, he never, he never called uh, anybody out as a, as a, as a, as a, as someone who is uh, angry or violent, uh, other than standing up for righteousness and holiness against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, uh, he never cheated anybody. He never lied to anybody. He uh, he was morally pure. He was emotionally pure. He was God. He was man. He was perfect. He was without sin. He was the perfect sacrifice. Verse 6 says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Now, turn to your neighbor and say, ever? Go ahead. Say, ever? I'm, like anyone who lives in him never sins, 
ever? It says, and then it goes on, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now, this is an interesting passage because you might read this passage and go, man, am I even saved? Right? I'm just curious, just, just curious. Who's here sinned in the last week? Just show of hands. Who's sinned? <laughs> Some of you are liars, so now you can put your hand up. Okay? All right, my hand's up too. We're all people who have who struggle and, and fall and fail, uh, some daily, some easily weekly, and often for sure. Uh, so, but John says that if you sin, then you don't know God. And I'm like, what does that even, what does that mean? Because this would be actually pretty depressing because that would mean that, that Sean isn't a Christian. <laughs> and it, it, would, it would mean a whole, it mean that you're not a Christian. It means that I'm not a Christian. Uh, here's what it means. When it says someone who does not sin, actually that is a, a active verb in the original. And what it is translated in more accurate translations is anyone who keeps on sinning. I'm going to explain that. What that means is it's someone who doesn't remain in a lifestyle of habitual sin. This is not about the daily struggle. This is not about the, the stumble and fall. This is not about the slip up of a word or a phrase or, or a thought. This is about someone who is living, who says, I'm a Christian, but they are still living a lifestyle that God says is not becoming of a follower of Christ. The verb tense is active, meaning if Christ is in you, you don't live business as usual. It's basically what he's saying. This is not about sinless perfection. This is not about that. But this is about not living in a state of continual sin. He goes on to explain in 1 John 3, 7, he says, Now, dear children, by the way, he says that a lot because he's like, man, I know this is heavy, but I love you. So in the next phrase, he says, like, dear children, like many, many times, like, dear children, I want you to know. Dear children, I want you to know. He's like, I know it's harsh, but listen, hear me out. He says, dear children, he says, do not let anyone lead you astray about this. He who does what is right is righteous. Just as he, Jesus, is righteous. That means you live differently. He says, he who does what is sinful, one who continues to live their sinful lifestyle, the person who says they are Christian but continues to live sinful lives is of the devil. Whoa, man, that sounds harsh. This is not about the daily struggle. This is not about a stumble. This is not about a fall. This is not about a mishap. Because Christians, we mess up. We make mistakes. We've already read that. But he's saying you don't live a life of sin and claim to be a Christian. He says if you are doing that, he says you're not a child of God. He says you're a child of the devil. Man, that's harsh, but that's what he says. Because he says this because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Guys, this is important. When Jesus stretched out his arms on that cross and his body was broken and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, he didn't just die so that we could be forgiven of our sins. He died to free us from the chains of sin. He came to break off of our life the habitual habits that drive destructive behaviors and results in our life. And on the way, when we stumble, we are forgiven. Thank God for that. But as we mature, we grow into maturity and into a level where the same things don't always bother us and pull us down. We're gonna, John actually talks about that here in a second. He says, 
um, there's a big change that happens. This, our internal hard drive is replaced. It has changed. It, this is how the Apostle Paul said in, in Romans chapter 6. By the way, Paul was very clear. He stumbles. He falls. He says, man, the things I want to do, I don't always do. The things I don't want to do and shouldn't do, man, I'm finding that I'm always doing this. And he says, what a wretched man am I? He says, man, I'm such a, man, I'm a loser. But then he says, who will save me from myself? And he says, thank God for Jesus. He says, thank God for Jesus. But he says, there's something going on inside of me, and it's, my hard drive has changed. Something inside has been changed. Man, when God kissed my life, man, my, this frog turned into a prince, but I still got frog habits. I still got frog tendencies. And he says this in Romans 6, however, in 17 and 18, he says there's an internal change. And he says, before I was a Christian, sin was natural. I didn't even think about it. I wanted to see something, do something, act something out. I had some moral guidelines, but if I was by myself, pretty much sin ruled my heart. I was a slave to sin. It was natural for me. He says, but when I became a follower of Christ, he says, I become a slave to righteousness. That means sin becomes unnatural for me. It doesn't mean I don't ever sin. It just means when I do, I don't like it. This is what he said. In 17 and 18, he says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, he says, you have, verse 18, you have been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. He says, a true follower of Christ, and John echoes this, is not someone who never sins, but someone who doesn't continue to walk in sin because it it convicts you, it bothers you, it hurts you. You feel terrible because the Holy Spirit in you is saying, it's grieving me, it's bothering me, this needs to stop. Christ in you says there's a better way, a better life, a better direction for you. And John says, if you continue to live in sin, he says, you're not a child of God. He's not saying those who struggle or stumble or, or have missteps. He says, but those who say, you know what, I can be a Christian and live any way I want. He says, those people are not followers of God at all. For the true follower of Jesus, when we sin, we are convicted. We are without peace inside because that is not us anymore. First John 3, 9, he goes on, he says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin, will continue to live in a life of habitual sin. He says, because God's seed, that's the Holy Spirit that was given to us at salvation, we are born again. If you are born again, you were given a gift. It was seeded into your life. It was planted into you. When you said, Jesus, here's my life. Forgive me of my sins. He gave you a deposit, and that deposit is a beautiful deposit, and he's not called the okay spirit, the wink at sin spirit. He's not called the you'll get by spirit, you'll survive spirit. He's called the Holy Spirit because his job is to teach us about everything that Jesus taught us, to remind us about everything that Jesus reminded us. He's there to encourage us, to challenge us, to counsel us, but he's also there, as his name suggests, to make us holy under God. We are holy through Christ. Now he says, now live holy lives. We're made holy not by our actions, not by our, uh, uh, our works. We're made holy through the blood of Christ, but you've been deposited into your life a holy spirit, God in you. Now walk in a new way of life, he says, because that's not us anymore. He says, you've been deposited a seed that remains uh, in him. He says, and that person, this Christian, he says, he can't go on sinning. 
You can't go on as business as usual because he has been born of God. That is a rebirth. That is a born again. Frogs continue to live in sin, but a prince lives or princess lives as if they serve the king. Guys, listen, people often think that they need to clean up their lives to come to God. They don't. They don't have to stop smoking, drinking, cussing. They don't have to stop. They don't have to break up a bad relationship. They don't have to get their marriage right. You you don't have to do anything to get your life in order with God. You just have to walk to the cross. You have to bow humbly at the feet of Christ and receive his grace, his forgiveness, repent, turn from your way, turn to his way, and let the seed of the Holy Spirit in you begin a work to change you from the inside out. It will grow. That seed, that little drop, that little deposit, that anointing, that Holy Spirit in you is a seed when you become a new Christian. So some people, when they're new Christians, they still stumble a lot. They still cuss a lot. Or they, they, they still struggle with drinking or they struggle with, with their addiction or whatever. It, because that, but that seed is in there and it's growing. And as you water that seed, as you are faithful to following God's will and plan for your life, that seed will grow and grow and grow. It will be rooted and you will mature. And what will drop off the branches of your life will be the fruit of the Spirit. He says, but some of you, you just got a seed right now. But you need to understand, you can't go on as business as usual if you have a seed. Because if the seed is in you, you can't go on. As, you, you don't want to. The want to changes. The want to changes. It will grow and it will change you. First John 3.10, he says, this is how you know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Man, that's harsh. Woo! He says, either you're a child of God. Or you're a child of the devil. Guys, I want to tell you, not everybody on the planet is a child of God. In fact, apart from Christ, the Bible says we are orphans, that we are fatherless. We are not children of God. The world, we are the world. We are his children. Remember that song from the 80s? We are the world to make a better place. So let's start giving. Remember that Band-Aid? Boy, that solved all the problems in Africa, didn't it? Sure did make them a lot of money, though. Tell you what, we're not God's children. We are God's creation who he loves, but we are not his children. We are made his children through Jesus Christ. When we give our life to Christ and we submit to him, the Bible says we become children of God. And he lavishes his love on us after that. We become adopted into the family of God. Apart from that adoption, we're fatherless. We're spiritual orphans. And he says, but this is how you know who the children of God is and who a child of the devil is. He says, that's the only option. If you're not a child of God, you're a child of the devil. He says, today's two most important questions. Two simple questions today. You know, we're looking at each uh, question each week, one or two. Two questions today. He gives right here. This is how you know. Number one, anyone who does not uh, do what is right is not a child of God, and nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So simply put, you can tell a Christian Not by their bumper stickers, not by their music library, not by their books or their words, but by their life. So let's take a look at these two questions. There's the internal question and the external question. Here's the internal question. The internal question is, am I making excuses or making progress? 
Remember, he just said, if anyone is born of God, they don't keep on living a life of sin, not because their efforts on the outside are trying to be a better person, but because on the inside, the internal question is, on the inside, are you allowing God to change you every day? Are you making excuses or are you making progress? See, a child of God is not perfect. A child of God is not sinless, but a child of God grows and matures and develops maturity as they grow with God. And here's what's cool about maturity with God. It's not about how many years you lived with Jesus. It's about how much you pursue the face of Jesus and his presence. So there are teenagers that are more passionate, more on fire than their parents. There are young adults that are new to their faith, that are more inspired and led and hearing God greater than those that have been walking with Jesus for 20, 30 years. Why? Because I think most Christians are about six months old. They get on fire for a while. They get excited. They read their Bible for a while. At about six months, they cap off. They settle in. They stop reading the Bible. They maybe go to church when it's convenient. And, and they basically are, are basic little baby Christian for their entire life. John says, you know what? Don't go on as business as usual. We're called to grow. We're we're called to mature. Are you growing or making excuses for sin? Excuses like, uh, well, it's just the way I am. Uh, Well, it's just the way the Blairs are. Um, It's how I roll. Take it or leave it. This is who I am. How come you can't just accept accept me for the way I am? Because, well, frankly, because you're rude and obnoxious and I don't like you that way. I always tell people, uh, don't be yourself, be the better you, you know? My wife doesn't want me. My wife wants the me that she has submitted to God and asked for. You know what I'm saying? It's like, because me, you, you know, you're selfish, I'm selfish. If we are, our, if you're just called to be yourself, you are selfish. You, you want nothing uh, except whatever makes you happy. You do nothing only that makes you happy or is easy for you, and we are selfish in the individuals when we when we are ourself be better than yourself let the holy spirit mature you in this area he says you know what stop making excuses and grow up if you settle for that if you just settle for well that's just the way i am you're a fraud here's some thoughts about this about overcoming sin as number one i want you to realize this overcoming sin is a lifelong process and a battle in Romans 7, Paul says, I struggle daily, but thank God for Jesus. He's maturing me every day. There's the daily change, the weekly change, the yearly change, but change. I want you guys just to, for just for a second, I want you to think about where you were a year from now in your walk with God. Ask yourself, am I more mature? Am I closer to God now than I was a year ago? Am I closer to God now than I was a month ago? I mean, some of you may be hard for you to see it or not, and that's why sometimes you need to ask a friend. You need to ask a spouse or you need to ask a, a leader in your life who you trust who's a, who's a Christian. Say, you know, where do you, because I have the opportunity to see some of you and you are growing. You may not see it, but you are growing. There is change, wonderful, beautiful change taking place in your life. The beauty of that change. You see, this frog right here, Ted Blair, the, the, this frog who was angry, bitter, Uh, lonely, unforgiving, 
I am now a new man. I, I, you know, some of you, th- that old frog of you was, was angry, bitter, drunk, addicted, lonely, unforgiving. But now you're a new man. But now you're a new woman. But now you're a prince of God. You're a princess of God. And every day we're changing more. Every day. I'm not who I was. Here's the second thing I want you to know about changing is that we have to be willing to do our part. The Holy Spirit plants a seed in us and begins to convict us and call us to maturity. Are you going to respond with humility or are you going to resist? That really exposes who the frogs and princes are. John asks, are you changing? There's a big biblical term for this. It's called sanctification. Sanctification means, it literally means set apart. It means when God says you're mine and you're my child, that means he sets you apart. He says, here's you in the middle of the world. Do you give your life to Christ? God says, bloop. He picks you up and he puts you outside of the culture of the normal world. And he says, bloop, you are now set apart. And that process of living set apart is called the process of sanctification. That process is where you're maturing daily to look more and more like him every day day. He says, John says, you know what? If you're, a, if you're a true prince of God, a princess of God, then you stop making excuses. First John 3, 11, he says, this is the message you have heard. A tale as old as time. We should love one another. Guys, the next thing, the next question is, is an external question. While the first question is a change that begins on the inside, This next one is one that is displayed on the outside. John hits over and over three major themes throughout 1 John. The first one is, what do you think about Jesus? Is he God? Is he Christ? Is he the Savior? Because if he's not, then you're not a child of God. And then he asks, what does your life say about Jesus? Do you live a life that honors and pursues the will of God? And the third thing he asks is, do you love like Jesus? So he says, what do you think about Jesus? What does your life say about Jesus? And what does your love say about Jesus? Here's the second question. We're going to end with this thought. We're going to pray here in just a second. Is this, it's the external question of, am I a true lover of people? Am I a true lover of people? 1 John 3.10, he says this, this is how you know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. We looked at the first one. Here's the second one. It says, anyone who does not love his brother is not a child of God. So I have a question for you. Whose child are you? Are you the child of the devil or are you a child of God? Jesus, just before he died, before he was taken to the cross, he gathered his disciples in, a, in an upper room and he, he had a meal with them. He set in place a new order of communion, uh, of breaking the Lord's bread. He prayed for them. He laughed for them. He washed their feet as a sign of humility. He served them though he was God. He served them. How amazing of an example is that for us? And this is what he said to them. He said this, a new command I give you, love one another. Now, I don't know about you, but I would read that and I'm like, you mean they've never loved anybody before? He's not talking about, you know, just love somebody. Yeah, I love your brother. Love you, man. I love that TV show. I love pizza. I love that restaurant. Uh, You know, I love... That sure, you know, he's not talking, he's talking about, and he's not even just talking about how you just love people, you know. Yeah, I love people, they're pretty good. I love that guy, I love her. Yeah, I don't love him anymore. Yeah, but I used to love him. That was my first love, but now they're not my love at all. He says, I'm giving you a new command. It's the kind of love that never stops. He says, I'm giving you a new challenge. 
He says, in the past, you loved according to what was convenient. You loved who deserved love. You loved who was easy to love. You loved those that you wanted to love. He says, but I've given you a brand new command. He says, I want you to love and the kind of love that doesn't stop, the kind of love that doesn't give up, the kind of love that doesn't pick and choose who you're going to love. He says, I give you a new command, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. See, the world loves the easy love. He says, but not you. You're to, you're to show love to everyone, everybody. In verse 35, he says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, not by how well you live, not by the bumper sticker on your car, not by what kind of music you listen to, not by the kind of clothes you wear, not by the tattoo that you sport, not by, you know, how kind. Those are fruits, and those are some of those things can be good. Uh, he says, but you're going to know, they're going to know, that you're truly legit by your love for one another. See, love is the defining characteristic of your faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot hate someone and consider yourself a child of God. John makes it very clear. For example, you cannot be a racist and think you are a Christian. You cannot hate people. You cannot. John then gives five thoughts about love in 1 John, and this is where we're going to read, we're going to pack this up, and we're going to let God change us. Is uh, 1 John 3, 14, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life. He says, because we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Man, this is hardcore. So if you think, well, there's just certain people I don't like. Well, you know what? Uh, you can maybe not like someone, but you got to love them. And you know it's love because something inside of you says, I really deeply care and wish them the best. We're going to see an example of that here in a second. He says, anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That means anyone who says, man, I wish you were dead. In your heart, you wish that person was never alive, never been born, that they didn't exist. You erase them from the memory of their existence in your heart. He says, man, that's the, that's the same type of attitude that a murderer has. He, Jesus said something similar when he says, those that have lust in their heart commit adultery. He's saying it's the similar type of thing. He says, there's an attitude inside of us that can be just as dark, just as ugly, just as sinful as the actions that they produce. He says, you know no murderer has uh, eternal life. Here's a couple of thoughts. I want you to write this down. Uh, He says, love, by the way, that murderer is not about uh, a past sin because every murderer can be forgiven if they bow at the feet of Christ. There's not a sin on this planet. There's not a sin that you've ever committed that can't be forgiven. This is about someone who's continuing to live in that sin. Uh, Someone who's a serial killer, uh, I doubt they're saved. Okay, Just, just say it. But there's people who've been serial killers who've given their life to Christ. And guess what? Whether you like it or not, we get to walk in heaven with them. I want you to write this down. Love is an outward proof of an inward change. If you've ever met an unloving, angry Christian, I would challenge that maybe they're not actually a Christian, according to John. Because if you know his love, it changes how you love. In 1 John 3, 16, he says, this is how we know what love is. You want to, and I put this on Facebook uh, this past week because all this love won, love wins. You know, love won 2,000 years ago through Christ. And First uh, John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus defines love. He says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, for others. 
I want you to write this down. This is the second thought that John gives us, is that love is an example to follow. As a Christian, our role is to take on the life of Christ, is to take Jesus' place in our culture, to be the kind of love that Jesus had, one that doesn't, that's not afraid to confront issues, but one who does it lovingly, compassionately, and caringly and patiently. Verse 17, it says, Anyone who has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Here's the third thing I want you to write this down, is that love is, an atti- love is not an attitude. Love is not an emotion. Love is an action. Love is a verb. Guys, if you think, you know, if you think that just you know, loving the homeless means you're feeling sorry for them, you're not loving them at all. John says if you have the ability to do something about it and you don't, how can you say you love them? Because love is not words. It's not, it's not a heartfelt kind of empathy. It is action, he says, and in truth. You say, well, I love everyone. Well, God didn't necessarily say for you just to blanketly love everyone. He's called you to love someone. He's called you to be a light, to be a hand, to be a voice to those who have no voice, to to reach out to those that are forgotten, those that are in love, those that are hurting. You say, well, I can't help everyone. Well, you can help someone. You can help someone. There's a world filled with need. Seven billion people on the planet. So much need. So much hurt. Christ says, if you love the world, if you are my disciple, then you will not just love in word, but you will love in action. He says, that's how you know who the, who the princes are. That's how you know who the princesses are. In Matthew 5, uh, Jesus talks about how easy it is to love those who love you, but a true follower loves those who are hard to love. Some say, well, um, do you love your wife? Of course, I got married. Of course, you know, 23 years ago, I walked an aisle. Of course, I love my wife. Look at the video. Is that marriage? Does that mean that you love your spouse? No, I love my wife because I show it. It doesn't matter what I did 23 years ago. It doesn't, where's the proof today? That's what John is saying. He says, the easy part is saying I do. The hard part is living it out and showing it. Love is not an attitude. Uh, It is not an emotion. It is an action. Here's another thing that verse tells us that love will often cost you something. He says, if you have the ability to help somebody, then you need to be able to help somebody. Then you need to do it because love will cost you something. I tell you, I love my kids. It costs me every day. It does. I love my wife. She costs me a lot. I'm just kidding. (laughs) You know, and I love you. and, And you know what? It costs me to love you because love costs you something. When you love somebody, and I'm not talking about it just costs you time. John says it costs you your resources. It costs your energy. It costs uh, your your convenience. It costs your plans. It costs it costs your your money and your time. And it costs Jesus his life. You know why love is so difficult? Because love requires humility. This is what Jesus said in five uh, of Matthew. He says, you have heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. <laughs> we'll be like, check, got that. I love the people I like. Man, I can, I can hate my enemy. No problem. He, but Jesus says, but I say, 
love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In a way, you'll be acting as a true, as true children of your Father in heaven. Jesus goes on to say that, that this is totally counterculture to the way the world operates. You know, with all that's going on this last week with the Supreme Court ruling, um, it's interesting how, how whenever we voice a difference of opinion, how people will cut us off and, and hate us and uh, unfriend us. And the, just because we're not being hateful, we're not being mean, we're just voicing a difference. It's like, you know, you know for them, love is dependent upon your agreement with everything that they do. For me, love does not depend upon me or you agreeing with everything. Because I'm going to love you no matter what. I don't unfriend anybody. Anybody. You know why? Because I love them. Most of the people on my friends on Facebook are not followers of Christ. And I hope that maybe I can be an influence and encouragement into their life. But I will not unfriend somebody just because we disagree. But that's how the world operates. Because they don't understand the Spirit of God in us. And, and they only love those that they want to love, choose to love, or who agree with them. Jesus says that's not love. Love is when you love someone no matter what. This kind of love requires humility, and it, this kind of love takes the Holy Spirit. You want to know what love looks like? About a week and a half ago, a 21-year-old man walked into Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and he opened fire and he killed nine people. Now, what made this so interesting is that he was a white man in an African-American church, and his goal, his motivation was, he said he wanted to start a race war. It was pure hatred that led him into that church. He killed nine people, including the senior pastor, injured others. This past week, the church's families addressed him in a courtroom. And what you are about to hear is what love looks like. Listen to this. Father, and the other victims died at the hands of hate. This is proof. Everyone's plea for your soul is proof that they lived in love and their legacies will live in love. Hate won't win.
Now, that was the abbreviated of, uh, of their testimonies that day as person after person, after family member after family member came up there and said, hate will not win. And uh, we will forgive you. And one gentleman even extended an opportunity for him to come to know Christ, to walk with him in heaven after he took the life of his family member. He says, hate will not win. We will, we must, we have to forgive you. And what I, what I, they, what I love about this is they're living exactly what the gospel tells us to do. And their love has overtaken, has overtaken the story of hate. And if you have followed any of the headlines over the last week on this or when, after this happened, the headlines were forgiveness. The headlines were hate did not win. The headlines were the power of Jesus to forgive. The headlines were hate is won, is beat. Uh, I mean, hate has not won. Love has beat. Love has conquered. Forgiveness has, has reigned. I tell you, that can only happen through Jesus Christ. The only reason that those people in that church were able, able to stand up and face that 21-year-old uh, person who hated them and wanted to start this race war, they looked at this person who hated them, and they said, we forgive you, we love you, God have mercy on you, repent, it's not too late. Here's the last thing, and I want to pray, is that John says that love ultimately draws us closer to God. When we choose to love others, it ultimately draws us closer to God. It brings us assurance of who we are and who we belong to. Let's wrap up that First John section and let's pray. First John 3, 18, we're going to just read these last couple of verses. It says, Dear children, he says, Let us not love with words or tongue or with the actions, or with action, uh, but with the actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. This is how and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. This is how you can have confidence that you are born again. He says, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything about us. He says, you can know that you know that you know that you are a child of God regardless of how you feel. He says, there will be times when your heart will condemn you, where you will feel guilty, where you will feel shame, you will do something, you will feel bad. He says, but you can have assurance. God knows everything about you. Don't let your heart lead you astray. He says, wherever our heart condemns us, God is greater and he knows everything. Verse 21, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, that means if you don't ever feel guilt or shame, we'll have confidence before God and receive from him everything that we ask because we uh, obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is the command, this is the end, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. You see, our faith is about doctrine and action. It's not just love. It's also what we believe. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. I'm not who I was. I got saved when I was a teenager. I gave my life to Christ at 13 as pimply-faced, insecure, lustful little punk and I lived for Jesus and I struggled all through my teen years to live for Christ I moved here to Texas and I continued to struggle but I grew and I grew and I grew and I grew and I I drew closer
closer and I chased him more and I pursued him more and I listened to the conviction of the Holy Spirit more and more and I'm not who I was. I forgive. I love. This frog became a prince. It's not a fairy tale. So two questions, a moment of truth. Are you making excuses or making progress? And are you a true lover of people? By the way, you can love somebody fully and still disagree with them. We have been confronted with an issue in our nation, a changing cultural change this last week. Don't ever stop loving. Don't ever stop living the life of Christ, even when you don't agree. We must live the love of Christ. That is a characteristic, the true defining characteristic of a follower of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that, Father, your word is true. It is faithful. It does not have an expiration date. God, thank you, Lord, that you have, uh, have set us free. God, you have forgiven us. God, there are those here that are children of God. And, uh, Lord, I pray that you would work in them, God, uh, maturity. And, God, if there's anyone here that is a frog, God, if there's anyone here who is, who is uh, uh, trapped in their own sin, God, they wandered in on this lily pad today. But God, let the kiss of heaven change them. As we close in, in our service today, if you're, if you're a frog today, will you take the time just to talk to Jesus? Say, Jesus, I feel like a frog. I feel spiritually deformed. I feel cursed. I feel like I have failed in life and I know I have made mistakes I know I have failed you I know I have been rebellious in my heart but dear Jesus in your own words tell him Jesus forgive me of my sin here's my life kiss of heaven change me God deposit the Holy Spirit in me and help me to walk in maturity more and more every day God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.